right, well, good morning. So good to see you all here. Welcome. Hey, grab a Bible if you brought one. Turn with me to the book of Jonah, chapter 1. Again, no shame if you have to use that table of contents. Jonah is a tiny book, probably just one or two, maybe three pages in your Bible. If you have a phone, of course, you could just scroll to the right book. But join me in Jonah 1. We started this series last week as we're just going to walk through it over the next uh, four or five weeks or so. Hope... uh, You were able to catch the beginning of it last week. My name's Matt. If we haven't had a chance to meet, would love to meet you. So glad that you're here, especially if you're new. It's not easy coming to a new place, especially a new church. So thanks for being willing to join us. We uh, take time out of our service every week to open up God's Word and to read it together and to, to learn together what God is saying to us through His Word. So I'm glad that uh, we're going to jump into that time now. But as we do that, there's one thing you should know about me. And maybe you already know this about me. I'm not the most fashion-aware person in the world. Okay, I'm not great at picking out, like, colors that match other colors or knowing what to wear and what not to wear. A lot of the times I leave the house looking rather goofy, and Amber will look at me and have some concerns about my outfit. Maybe you're like, Matt, we know this. We already, we've learned this about you already. Uh, But maybe you can relate with me. Not the most fashion aware person in the world, but there is one piece of clothing, one type of clothing that I am fairly aware of, that I am fond of, and that is the sports jersey. Whether it be football, basketball, baseball, this is a beautiful 49ers jersey. Can I get an amen? All right. This is one of my favorites, the beautiful red home jersey. Love representing my favorite team, some of my favorite players. Maybe you own some jerseys of your own. It might not be a 49ers jersey. Maybe you have a Raiders jersey. Maybe you have an A's jersey, a Giants jersey. Fair enough, but I'm a fan of jerseys. Now, here's the deal. When I wear this jersey, no one has ever come up to me and thought that I was actually a member of the San Francisco 49ers, (laughs) right? Nobody has ever questioned that or thought that I was somehow a professional football player. They know that there's a difference between owning a jersey, wearing a jersey, and actually being on the team, right? Totally different. Being on the team would require much more of me. I would have to travel with the team. I have to be a lot stronger, first of all, than I am now. I'd have to play in the games that the team plays. I'd have to go to the film sessions that the team does, go to the practices, meet with the coaches, learn the playbook, right? There's all kinds of things I would have to do if I was actually on the team. But to just wear the jersey, that's, that's pretty easy. There's a big difference. As we continue in Jonah chapter 1, we're going to see that Jonah's wearing a team jersey, He's wearing a jersey. He's identifying himself as a prophet of God, as someone who worships the Lord. But we're going to see that he's not really doing the things that people on the team are supposed to do. He's wearing the jersey in word, but his actions are actually communicating something quite different. And you'll see what I mean as we 
jump in. Just a quick recap before we start in verse 4. Last week we started off the series in verses 1 through 3, and God calls out to Jonah and tells him what? To go to Nineveh, preach to Nineveh in hopes that this wicked, sinful city that was so far from God, in hopes that they would turn to God, that they would have a chance to receive God's grace, that they would maybe repent. But Jonah instead goes where? To Tarshish. He jumps on a boat and heads the opposite direction. He says, no, thank you, Lord. I'm going the other way. And so Jonah is a prophet on the run, and maybe you have been on the edge of your seat since last week, just waiting to find out what's going to happen to this rebellious prophet. You're losing sleep over it. It's been building up within you until this very moment when we're about to read verse 4 and find out what God does. Or maybe you just read ahead in your Bible during the week. That would have worked too. But we're going to read it together now. We're going to read almost the rest of chapter 1. So let's read it here, starting in verse 4. It says this, Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea. Remember, Jonah's sailing away from God. And such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid and cried out each to his own God. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. So the captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up. Call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who's responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us. Jonah, who's responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I'm a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them. And they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he'd already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, and so they asked him, What should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it's my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. And then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah, threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. All right, so the story continues with this rather chaotic, intense seen on the water. This storm is sent by the Lord, a great storm, one that is so great that even these professional sailors who have probably been on the sea their entire lives are fearing for their lives. The ship under their feet is about to break apart. They're terrified. And what unfolds from there that we see with Jonah is repeated reminders that Jonah is running away from God. We're going to see this over and over again in the passage that Jonah, the prophet, 
the man of God who's supposed to be serving God is actually doing the exact opposite of what he should be doing. We see this in several ways throughout this passage. Maybe you caught a few of them. But first, notice this. In the language that's used, over and over again, it says that Jonah went down. Okay, in verse 5, we see this is symbolic language. He's descending away from God. Okay, verse 5, all this chaos is happening on the top uh, of the boat and the sea, but Jonah is where? He had gone below the deck where he lay down and was sleeping. More literally, it reads, Jonah went down into the ship. Now, this may seem insignificant, might seem like a small literary grammatic detail that doesn't mean much, but we see this repetition in the passage. Look earlier at verse 3. It says Jonah's running from God, and what did he do? He went down to Joppa, where he got on this ship in the first place. And then later in that verse, it says what? He went down into the ship to sail away for Tarshish. And now in verse 5, he had gone down into the inner part of the ship. He went down, he went down, he went down. Again, in the next chapter, we're going to see one more time, he goes down. This is not insignificant. The author of Jonah is trying to help us see that not only is Jonah horizontally running from God, right? You remember the map? He's not going to Nineveh. He's going the way other direction horizontally. But now also vertically, he's descending away from God. He's going down further and further. With every step, he's fleeing God's presence. It's not looking good for Jonah. But there's more. It gets worse. While we're on this ship, he's inter- or we're introduced to who? These sailors. These professional sailors. And we don't know a lot about them. The text doesn't give us much, but we have enough to know that they're probably these pagan sailors. They're not Jews. They don't worship the one true God. They don't know the scriptures. They have their own gods that they're crying out to. And yet it's these pagan sailors who are the ones doing the right thing in the passage. Do you notice that? The sailors are kind of the, the heroes of the passage, and Jonah is kind of a bum doing what he's not supposed to be doing. Notice in verse 6, the captain of the ship goes to Jonah while the storm is raging and says, how can you sleep? Get up. Call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Okay, storms raging, The sailors, remember, throwing cargo over the ship, trying to lighten it, doing whatever they can to to save the lives of those on the ship and to save Jonah's life. But Jonah's sleeping. He's taking a nap. doesn't really care. And the sailors have to go and wake Jonah up and tell him to pray. See that? Jonah, get up. Pray to your God. Why aren't you praying and crying out to God. And again, this makes us think, shouldn't this be the other way around? Shouldn't Jonah, the, the prophet of God, be the ones leading people in a prayer time? And a, Let's gather up, guys. Let's get in a prayer circle. Let's pray to the Lord. He's the servant of God, and yet he's not praying. These pagan sailors have to tell him to pray, and he doesn't even end up praying. Look throughout the rest of the chapter. He never prays. Like That's strange. There's more. Next, the sailors want to figure out who's responsible for all the chaos that's going on. 
And so they cast lots, which was some ancient way of trying to kind of figure out or discern the will of God or the will of the gods. And in this case, it kind of works out and it identifies Jonah as the culprit, as who is responsible. And you notice there's this now like lightning fast string of interrogation questions that they fling. It's like they're in 24. This is a Jack Bauer scene, and they're like, what are you doing? Who's responsible for making this trouble? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? What people are you? They're really bringing it at Jonah. And he responds, and we'll talk more about how he responds, but essentially he says, okay, I worship God. I'm a Hebrew. I worship the the God of all creation. And you notice how the sailors respond to that? Verse 10, they're terrified. This terrified them. And they ask, what have you done? They hear that Jonah's on the run, running from God, from the creator of the universe. And the sailors are like, Jonah, this is not a good plan. They're terrified. Jonah, what are you thinking? What are you doing? How could you possibly think that this is a good plan? And so you see in the sailors, this, this fear of God, this holy reverence or awe for who God is, which, again, shouldn't we expect that from Jonah and not the sailors? Jonah doesn't seem to care while these sailors are saying, Jonah, what are you doing? They have soft hearts to who God is. There's more. In verse 12, Jonah says, yeah, you probably should just kill me. I'm the problem, which we might think sounds heroic. He's willing to sacrifice himself for the good of the ship. What a great guy. But really, there's other things he could have done. He could have repented, right? He could have prayed to God, said, God, I'm sorry. I I will do what you've called me to do. But instead, as kind of this last-ditch effort to get out of his assignment to go to Nineveh, he says, you know what, just kill me, toss me overboard, I'd rather die than go and do what God has called me to do. But the sailors, once again, respond well. Verse 13, they instead did their best to row back to land. They don't want to kill Jonah, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Again, the sailors, they don't want to kill Jonah. They're concerned for his well-being. They're concerned for his life. And they cry out to God. And what do they say? God, we don't want to offend you. God, don't blame us for this event that is happening. Don't blame us for taking this man's life. We don't want to do this. They don't want to wrong the Lord or go against him. God, we want to do right by you. Which again, shouldn't that be Jonah saying that? Shouldn't Jonah be the one with a soft heart not wanting to wrong the Lord, convicted of sin? But no, he doesn't care. But the sailors do. There's more. Eventually, they do toss Jonah overboard. Verse 15, they took Jonah, threw him overboard into the raging sea. Excuse me, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. So the sea is made calm, the storm stops, and what do the sailors do? They worship God. 
the sailors make sacrifices to the Lord. They make vows to him. Jonah just goes from bad to worse, gets tossed into the sea to his what we would assume is his watery grave where these pagan sailors end up worshiping the one true God. So do you see the irony of Jonah chapter 1? It's just dripping off the page for us to see. I mean, think about all of these things we've just noticed together. It's the pagan sailors who pray and tell Jonah to pray. Jonah doesn't pray. It's the sailors who fear the Lord, who have a sensitive heart, say, Jonah, what are you doing? This is a terrible idea. Jonah doesn't care. It's the sailors who don't want to offend God. God, don't blame us for these events. Jonah doesn't care. And it's the sailors at the end who worship God while Jonah doesn't. Over and over again, Jonah's not doing what he's supposed to be doing. And these sailors are kind of putting him to shame, reminding us that sometimes people who don't know the Lord are better at obeying God's commands than we are. And yet, in the middle of this, let's go back to what Jonah says in verse 9. Notice it? In the center of the passage, kind of the hinge, kind of the focus to the whole text of what's going on in chapter 1, the sailors are questioning Jonah, and what does Jonah say in response? I'm a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. One of those places we read in Scripture, and again, it makes us go, what? Really? Really, Jonah? Do you? Do you worship the Lord? Do you fear the Lord, Jonah? Because everything else in your life Everything else in the passage is pointing the opposite direction. And yet you stand up here and boldly, almost smugly, say, I'm a Hebrew. I'm one of God's people. I worship the one true God. I mean, it's just abundantly clear that his actions are totally betraying his words, they're in complete conflict. It's interesting then that Jonah, he'd have no problem teaching an orthodox view of God. He could teach the Bible pretty well, probably. Maybe he could even teach at a seminary. He knows the orthodox confessions that God is the creator of all things. He could probably tell you what the Bible says quite well. Jonah's problem is not information or lack of knowledge or not believing the right things about God. His problem is obedience. His problem is actually living how God has called him to live. He can say the right things. The great irony is he's wearing the jersey. He's telling people he's on the team, but he's not really doing the things that the team is supposed to do. And so what this passage really does is reminds us How foolish, how foolish it looks to claim to follow God, to claim to to worship God when our lives tell a different story, when our lives are in such direct conflict to this. 
A German pastor, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, put it this way. He described it as cheap grace. Cheap grace, he says, where we preach forgiveness without requiring repentance. Where we want Jesus as our Savior, but not as our Lord. We want the benefits of forgiveness and God's grace and love, but we don't want to change how we live at all. We don't want to obey. We don't want to follow him. As we reflect on this passage, I think hopefully we're aware of ways that we have been like Jonah. Ways that our actions, our lives have communicated one thing, even though we claim to worship Jesus, even though we claim to follow Jesus. This was a tough week as I was considering this passage and what it looks like for me, what this has meant in my own life. I'm a, I'm a pastor. Talk about the gospel a lot. Talk about the good news of Jesus from the pulpit up here a lot. I was wondering, man, how often do I share the good news of Jesus with a, with a friend or with a family member? How often do I intentionally talk about who Jesus is with them? I was discouraged seeing not nearly as many examples in my life of doing that. And I say we should do it. Talk about it plenty up here. I don't always live it out in the other avenues of my life. This could look a lot of different ways for us. Sometimes we say, I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, but God, you can only have this much of my time. I'll think about you on Sunday. Think about you on a Wednesday night at my small group, if you're lucky. But other than that, my time and my thoughts are going to be focused elsewhere. I say, I worship the Lord, the God of heaven. But God, you can have this much of my money. I'll give a little bit. I know you told me to be generous. I'll do that a little bit, but I'm not going to give sacrificially. I'm not going to help those in need. My money is really my own. As we say, I worship the Lord. The God of heaven. And yet we turn around and criticize our, our neighbors or tear people down with our words. We, we gossip. We're, we're harsh about others behind their back. Sometimes we say, I worship the Lord. But we don't pray or open our Bibles. Again, other than maybe on a Sunday. I worship the Lord. But I'm not going to forgive those who have wronged me. I'd rather stay bitter. I'd rather hold a grudge than forgive how God has called me to. We could go on. Probably plenty of these that you could add from your life or from what you've seen. Unfortunately, sometimes we look at our lives or the lives of the people of God and they don't always look that different from, from other people in the world, from other people who who don't know Jesus. Maybe we've seen this uh, in the lives of others, of those that we've trusted. Maybe we've looked to Christian leaders or teachers or pastors that know plenty about the Bible and say plenty of the right things, but then in their lives, in their relationships, there's uh, chaos. And the way they treat people, the way they carry themselves is out of line with what Scripture calls them to. 
But again, they teach the right thing. They say the right words. So as the people of God, we're, we're challenged to think about, do our lives match what we claim we believe? I heard this pastor one time share this story. It's always stuck with me. He uh, went with his family to Chipotle, to the fabulous land of Chipotle. I love it so much. So right when I heard it, I was like, I'm in. Tell me more. He's there with his wife and their four kids. And they get to the front of the line. It's kind of a busy time at Chipotle. I think it's around dinner time. And as they're getting at the front ready to order, this man comes up from the side. And his name uh, they found was Reed. Reed comes up and says, hey, can you buy me a burrito? And in looking at him, he, they didn't know his story, but he seemed a little rough around the edges. Maybe he was homeless. Something wasn't going well in his life. And so it's like, man, this guy's maybe in need. And the pastor who was interacting with Reed is like, wow, my kids are watching. There's this huge long line. I'm not going to say no. And so sure, yeah, I'll, I'll buy you a burrito. And if you know Chipotle, you, you go down the line, you pick out your bowl or your burrito or your salad, whatever it might be, and you then choose rice and beans. And when, when Reed got to the meat selection, he got steak, but he got double steak. And they say beggars can't be choosers, but this guy was choosing. He said, I want double steak. And the pastor was like, okay, I don't even get double steak. That's, that's pretty bold, but okay, you, you know. I'm not going to start an argument here, so here you go. And then they kept going. There's the, the sour cream and the cheese. You pick out your salsas, and then if you've been to Chipotle, you know what's coming at the end. That guacamole. Costs extra, doesn't it? Is Reed going to get the guacamole? He does. He's like, give me that guacamole. And the pastor was like, seriously? All right. You, he, he got the guacamole, okay. And then he gets his chips. He gets his soda. And they check out, and the order was quite expensive, but he's like, he's kind of fuming inside. Feels like he's being scammed or taken advantage of, that this man's not grateful that I would buy him a meal. I mean, he's pushing the limits. So he pays for the stuff, and him and his family are about to sit down, and he says to Reed before he leaves, like, you know what? I just want you to know, I'm doing this because I'm a follower of Jesus. Doing this in Jesus' name. And Reed says, thanks. And Reed leaves. And the pastor sits down with his family, just grumpy, just bitter the rest of the night. The next day, the pastor is kind of reflecting on that interaction, saying, Lord, what, what was going on? And God kind of pointed out to him where he had gone wrong. He convicted him, and he said, you know what? You told Reed that you were doing that in my name. You told him you were buying that for him in Jesus' name. You weren't doing that in my name. Because if you were doing that in Jesus' name, your attitude would have been totally different. If you were doing that in Jesus' name, it would have been joy. It would have been a heart of love towards this man. You would have walked him through and said, you know what? You want the double steak? Double steak, triple steak. It's delicious. I want you to enjoy it. And let's go down the line and pick out your salsa and the guac. Read, I know it's extra. I don't care. Throw the guac on there. I want you to have it. Chips, soda, wash down that delicious food with some Coke. Here we go. And you know what? Why don't you come have dinner with my family? Why don't you come sit with me? We'd love to hear your story. We'd love to share a meal with you and get to know you. 
That's what it would have looked like if you did that in my name. He was convicted because he realized he said the right thing. He knew what to say. Hey, this is in Jesus' name, but his, his heart, his attitude was totally contrary to that. It reminds us how as, as Christians, sometimes we know what to say. We know what hoops we maybe should jump through, but our hearts, the way we live, doesn't always match the Lord. <clears throat> now, I don't say this to just condemn us or to unnecessarily uh, leave us discouraged. And I'm not saying this because uh, we should see every sin as evidence that we're not really walking with Jesus. Or we see, you know, every time we sin, we should question whether or not we're even a believer. That's, that's not what I'm saying. But we should have soft hearts, reflective hearts where we take a look at our lives. And if our actions or our attitudes are out of line with who God has called us to be, then I hope we would be repentant to, to say, you know what, Lord, I'm sorry, and to, to change that part of our lives so that it matches what we say we believe. This is kind of what Jonah 1 is, is putting before us, this mirror to see the foolishness, the ugliness of a man saying he worships God, but then doing the complete opposite with his life. It's important at this point to, to remember the gospel before we go any further. Remember the good news of Jesus. Always when we talk about obedience, when we talk about changing our lives, when we talk about uh, doing the things that God tells us to do, we have to remember that we do not behave or obey in hopes to earn God's love or as if in order to get on the team, we got to jump through these hoops and do the things right. That's the wrong way of looking at it. It's the wrong motivation. When we remember the gospel, it's that God has already placed his love on us and if we've responded through faith, God welcomes us into his family. We're justified by faith. We're right with God by faith. We're adopted into his family by faith, by his grace that he freely gives. It's a gift. We don't earn it. So then from that place of, you know what? God, I'm on your team. God, I'm walking with you. Then we seek to live a life of obedience in response. God, you have already loved me. Now I want to live for you. God, you've already loved me. Now I want to obey you, not in order to earn the love of God. So important as we have this conversation that we remember the gospel. As much as this chapter is about Jonah and his foolish <laughs> actions, I do want us to see what it's telling us about God. You notice in verse 4, how does this all start? The Lord sent a great wind. God sends a storm. Throughout the book, we'll see God take direct action to intervene in Jonah's life, reminding us of the sovereignty of God, of the power of God, his authority over everything, over the natural world, over all of creation. There's nothing outside of his control. He's sending the storm. He controls the winds and the seas, and it reminds us how big God is how powerful, how great God is. And as hypocritical and as ironic as Jonah's words are in verse 9, 
they do tell us something true about God. Right? What does he say? I worship God, the, excuse me, the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This God is the God of the heavens above, the earth below, the sea, the dry land, and everything else. That's true. Jonah's right that that is who God is, which makes it even more foolish that Jonah is running from God, the maker of the sea. He's running away from the creator of the seas on the sea. It's like, Jonah, why would you think you could get away from this God who is everywhere? It reminds us of the words of the psalmist who said, where can I go from your presence? God, if I climb to the heights, you are there. If I go to the depths, you're there. Even if we would want to escape from God, there's nowhere that we can go where he is not present. Which is either good news or bad news, depending on where you are. It's good news if you desire the presence of God. It's good news if you're hurting, if you're crying out to him. This is a reminder that he's near. There's nowhere that he is not present. He's close, even if it doesn't feel like it. He's with you. But this is bad news for us if we're trying to run away from God, trying to dodge his influence in our life, trying to avoid him, trying to put off responding to him. This reminds us he's everywhere. There's nowhere that he is not present. You know, this reminds us that sometimes when we run, God intervenes. And maybe it'll be in a pretty loud way to get our attention. You know, I've heard plenty of stories of people who had a, a crisis, had a storm, a really challenging event or season in their life. And God used it to get their attention. God used it to bring them back to him, to, to wake them up, to open their eyes. And maybe that's where you are today. You're caught in a storm. And maybe there is something that God's trying to, to say to you in it. Something that God's trying to draw you out of, a way that God's trying to get your attention. We would be in error if we went as far to say that every storm is sent your way because of your sin. That's not what I'm saying. It's not biblical. The scriptures do not teach that. We can't just assume that, oh, something went wrong, you broke your leg? What did you do wrong? You know, that, that's not biblical. However, there are examples of scripture where that is the case, where God does respond in such a way to get our attention. So all I'm saying is we can't rule that out, and we should be thoughtful, discerning, prayerful to say, Lord, What's going on here, Lord? What, what would you have me learn through this? Of course, when we see others in this, we need to have great compassion and sensitivity. We don't know why certain storms come, but we can ask, Lord, is there something for me in this? I'm listening. You know, maybe if you're here today and you're running like Jonah, you haven't ever trusted in the Lord for the first time, I would encourage you to let today be that day. You say, Lord, I've been running. I've heard the gospel of what you've done for me. I want to respond. God, would you forgive me of my sin and enter my life? I trust you now. I encourage you. Let today be that day where you trust in him and begin this new life with him, receiving forgiveness of sins, 
and a new heart and his spirit in you and a loving family. Now, for those of us, as we close, who are familiar with the New Testament, maybe you've read through the Gospels, maybe Jonah chapter 1 is uh, making some connections for you, the New Testament. Because in the book of Mark, chapter 4, there's another group of men who are on the water in a boat. And there's another storm that comes upon that boat. And the sailors in that story are likewise terrified. And there's a man sleeping in the stern of that boat. But that boat was not Jonah and the sailors in Jonah chapter 1. That was Jesus and his disciples in Mark chapter 4. And Jesus wakes up like Jonah does. And the storm is calmed by Jesus, not by jumping into the water the way Jonah did, but no, Jesus, what, with a word, says, be still. Peace. And the storm stopped. The winds stopped. The water grew calm. Do you remember how the disciples responded? They were terrified. Who is this? Who is this Jesus? Even the wind and the waves obey him. See, they knew their Old Testament. They knew the story of Jonah. They knew that only God could send the storm and only God could take away the storm. And here is Jesus taking away the storm. Here is Jesus with his very words stopping the storm, doing what only God could do. If that's the case, then who is this Jesus? This is no man, no, uh, merely, not merely a man. This is God himself standing in front of us. So as we wrap up Jonah chapter 1, for the most part, with Jonah tossed into the ocean, there's plenty here to convict us, to challenge us. I hope it leaves us with some real reflections on our own lives, but I hope it also points us to Jesus with all these uh, images that connect to the gospel. I hope it reminds us of Jesus, his power, his grace, his glory, what he has done to save us. That's why we worship him. That's what we celebrate together as a church family, how he has so loved us. and He's worthy of our worship. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for your word. It uh, challenges us. It convicts us. Lord, we pray that you would help us to see the example of Jonah and respond differently than he did. Help us, Lord, obey you and follow you and trust you. Help us to see the areas of our lives that are out of sync with what we say we believe about you. Forgive us for those areas, Lord. And Lord, help us to walk with you and worship you and you alone. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.